0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This is the week of Martin Luther King Day, a time to remember a person who tried to teach us what it would be like to live in a world without the hatreds that tear us apart. It is also the week that we will be protesting the inauguration of someone whose hatreds drip from his skin like cheap bronzer, Donald Trump. That is why today you will hear an interview with one of the finest people I know, 1968 Olympian John Carlos, who will speak about the Dr. King he knew and the Donald Trump he has no interest in knowing. We did this as part of the MLK celebrations in front of 400 awesome high school students at Middlesex in Concord, Massachusetts. Special young people and a special day and stirring words of resistance that makes the past not feel so very past. And I have some choice words about Giannis Antetokounmpo. AKA the Greek freak, the absurdly talented small forward of the Milwaukee Bucks, and why we need to not only cheer for this brilliant young player, but defend him from political violence. And we have a very special Kaepernick watch for you. But first, let's get to Dr. John Carlos on Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, this is the time of year where uh, we commemorate the life and the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I think for a lot of folks, uh, for myself as well growing up, uh, being born in the 1970s, like Dr. King was not a flesh and blood human being. He was more of this, uh, like, like an idea. Uh, and you're someone, though, who actually met and spoke with Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968. And I was hoping you could tell these students about what that was like to meet Dr. King, the circumstances of that meeting, and what your assessment of his character was on a one-on-one level.
1: Very interesting. I just left the state of Texas. Uh, the social climate in Texas was not good in 1965. I was a young married man, my senior year in high school. Uh, and it's then I might add that I got married for love not because my wife was pregnant. She didn't get pregnant until
2: after. That.
1: <laughs> if you leave here with nothing else, please remember that. <laughs> So anyway, so I left and I went back to New York and I'm trying to figure out on the left East Texas State, what am I going to do now? How am I going to support my family? And I'm at my mom's house in New York and, and she's painting the kitchen and I'm helping her paint the kitchen. And the phone goes off and she answers the phone and she comes back and she says, Professor Harry Edwards on the phone would like to talk with you. So I get on the phone, what's going on Harry, how, how you doing? Listen, John, I'm I'm in New York. Uh, There's a very important meeting taking place and some people asked me to invite you to the meeting. So I told my mom, she said, well, listen, if they invite you, you need to be there. So I get up and I go downtown, and as long as I've been in New York, I never went into the major hotels. And I'm in the hotel and I'm looking around and I'm, I'm thinking about my mother because my mother loves furniture and she's a perfectionist in the whole nine yards. And I'm looking at this big huge chandelier and I'm looking at the mirrors and so and I'm saying, man, I could take that chandelier to the pad and I could take that soap and my mom would be. And then I snapped out of it and I went to the desk and I asked for SCLC. I didn't even have a clue what SCLC was at that particular time. And they told me to go to such such room. And I go up there and I knock on the door. And I see a guy that I know that this was the guy, but in my brain I'm saying it's him, but it's not him. It's not him, but it is him, because I knew this guy, but I knew him in my mind to be at least six feet four, six five, <laughs> somewhere around there, but the guy was actually four feet six. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, but he was so cordial and so nice, and he invited me in and asked me what i like to have—coke, or sandwich, or cookies, or whatever. And I'm sitting around and I'm watching all these luminaries that I've seen over the years on TV that was involved in the civil rights movement. And I'm sitting back and I'm saying to myself, my God, my mother needs to be a bug on my lapel or uh, a uh, rock in my pocket. She needs to be here. Mm. And
0: uh, the person who answered that door was?
1: The person who answered the door was Andrew Young. Dr. Andrew Young, I might add. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I'm sitting there. and I'm, I'm looking around. And I'm kind of nervous because I'm feeling like I'm out of place. I don't belong in this room. With these people that I'm seeing. And about maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes later, a side door opened in that room, and Dr. King walked out of there. I'm still wringing out my underwear. I mean, I was just, just in total amazement that that I'm in the room with some that my that that my mom and dad they they, they love Dr. King immensely. And here, little Johnny Collins is sitting in the room, and he walks into the room. And I mean, it's just incredible. It's like God walked in the room, a God's right-hand man walked in the room, and you're that close to him. And uh, I guess he noticed right away that I was a little shaken, and I'm maybe one or two other people might have been that way. And then I began to check him out, check his persona out. And he was so cool. He realized that I had this little nervous edge on me. And then he went into his Saturday Night Live comic thing. And he started cracking a couple of jokes. And I guess in my psyche, I said, this dude is a regular dude. And I kind of like relaxed. And when he saw that sort of everyone was relaxing that he said, all right, we'll start the meeting. And now the topic of the meeting was to publicly he had some discussion and and then make a public statement about him coming out to to support the 1968 Olympic boycott. And we started talking and he was talking about, he thought it was an excellent idea to make a national statement, bring all the athletes together, all the black athletes and any other athlete that felt uh, compelled to support their movement. And uh, he went on to say, through the conversation and he received a letter in the mail and the letter they told him they had a bullet with his name on it and he wouldn't have to wait long. So that clocked right away when he said it, because he said it so casual, and just went on to the next something. So now the meeting is over and he asked, do we have any questions? Well, i threw my hand up right away, I had two questions. So said, what's that, John? I said, well, Dr. King, have you ever played any sports? And he laughed, he said, that's a good question. He said, I can't shoot pool. I looked at him. I said, well, Dr. King, why would you get involved in the Olympics? And he told me, he said, that's a better question. He said, listen. He said, just imagine you getting in a rowboat, and you row out to the center of this huge lake, and you bring the oars into the boat, and you sit them down, and as you sit them down, you pick up a rock and have this rock in your lap, and then you just sit there still, Until everything is quiet and serene. He said, then you take that rock and you throw it overboard. He said, what happens? And I said, it creates vibration. He said, absolutely, it creates waves. He said, that rock that you threw in the water was the Olympic movement, the Olympic boycott. He said, everyone on planet Earth will focus on the fact that you guys are backing up from going to the games. He said, that rock will let anyone in that water know that something is amiss." Anyone on the shores of that lake would know something to miss. He said, the greatest thing about it is that you can make a a powerful statement and such a nonviolent statement at the same time. Man, that was like a jubilee cable. Let me put this in my basket and take it with me. And I got ready to walk on. He said, well, John, you said you had two questions. And I said, yes, Dr. King. I said, you made a statement about they sent you a letter. And in this letter, they said that, uh." They have a bullet with your name on it, and you wouldn't have to wait long. Now, I used to wear these black rim glasses, these horn-rimmed glasses, and they were shades. They didn't dilate like they do today. Now, I remember when I asked him the question, I was compelled to take the glasses and push them down on my nose, because I didn't want to look in his eyes through glasses. I wanted the eyeball all eyeball. And you can pretty much surmise as to why I pull those glasses down on my nose. I pull them down because I want to look in his eyes and I'm looking for that word called fear. Someone tell you that they get ready to take your life and it's not going to be long. I want to see him shaking because that's what you would think that he would do. But when I looked in his eyes, I didn't see nothing but love and compassion in his eyes for humanity. I saw him standing there solid as a rock when I asked him about somebody taking his life. That was encouragement for me right there. But then he went on to tell him, he said, John, I have to go back to Memphis. He said, because I'm going back to deal with the sanitation department. He said, people think that it's all black people that's there. He said, but it's multicultural. He said, I'm going back there to defend their right. No one is standing up for them. Someone has to. And I said to him, I said, you mean? No one to stand up for him. He said, well, listen, they don't stand for themselves. They can He said, those that want to stand, they can't stand. I have to go back there and stand for both parties. And when he said that, like my whole life went full circle when he said that, because that's something I was doing from the time I was you guys' age, younger than you. But I never put a caption on it. I always did what I felt was the right thing to do all my life. But for him to say that he was standing for people that couldn't stand for themselves, and standing for people that wouldn't stand for themselves. That's what I've been doing every day. Mm. So we embraced one another, and he said that he was ready to go to Memphis. When he come back from Memphis, then we was gonna have a full-pledge press conference for him to come out publicly to state that he would lend his support to the Olympic boycott. I will always remember that because Dr. King was a very strong influence on me relative to this demonstration that you see back there. Because what he said, he said that the statement that you make by this boycott can be so pungent and strike out throughout the whole planet Earth. He said, but yet still, it still be so nonviolent at the same time. So when I went to Mexico City, I had that in mind. How could I do something that would be so pungent and reach the far ends of the earth and be a nonviolent state. God put that in my head. Mm. It was perfect. God sent me to Dr. King. It was even more perfect. Now, the greatest thing is that I'm still alive here 71 years later to sit before young minds and lay it on you and say, Now it's your call. You figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your time on this flat. Now, this was early
0: 1968, when you met with Dr. King in April, of course. He was shot down by an assassin's bullet in Memphis, standing with the sanitation workers. Do you remember what went through your mind when you heard that Dr. King had been killed and how it made you feel about what you were going to do moving forward to the Olympics?
1: Well, there's something else that Dr. King said to me. that. Uh Staying with me. So I was kind of like relaxed when I got the word that he was assassinated. I mean, I remember going on the campus in San Jose State and making some harsh statements. But I think the thing that relaxed me about the fact that physically he was taken away from us is a statement that he made to me in that meeting. He said, he said, John, you know, because I asked him, I said, well, don't you have a concern about them taking your life? And he told me, he said, every man should be concerned about them taking your life, but I'm not worried about that. And I think he made a speech, and he referenced that in his speech. Uh, But he said to me, he said, John, he said, I've done a lot in my life. Everybody know me. He said, but I will live stronger once I leave here based on what I've done while I was here. So they took his life, but he became larger than life. Not because of his name, King, because of the actions that what he did under that name, King. So long after he's dead and gone, we build the mountain higher and higher in terms of the accolades that we bestow upon him just based on his genuineness about being concerned about his fellow man, not just black men, but all men and women he was concerned about. And I respect and admire him for that. So when he died, it's like his spirit just rolled up in me to make me that much more stronger Make me that much more relaxed and make me that much more determined to try and reach one person a day in my life to make them have a better thought of life in terms of how we can make this a higher playing field for all individuals.
2: Let me say that I absolutely support this boycott. I would also like to commend the outstanding athletes who have the courage and the kind of determination to make it clear that they will not participate in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City unless something is done about these terrible problems, these terrible evils and injustices. Freedom always demands sacrifice, and uh, what they are giving up is limited in terms of standing up for manhood, and this is what they are doing. They have the courage to say we are going to be men, and the United States of America have deprived us of our manhood, our dignity, and our native worth. Consequently, we're going to stand up and make the sacrifice, and a sacrifice is always necessary to gain that which you seek in a just way. You know,
0: a lot of folks have been talking over the last couple days about what Martin Luther King would have said, if alive, at age 88, which is what he would have been this year, what he would have said about this incoming administration, what he would have been saying about Donald Trump, would he be protesting Donald Trump, would he be uh, trying to broker some sort of reconciliation between Donald Trump and uh, communities that are protesting him. The people who say that, I would argue, are incredibly self-serving, but whatever, that's just me. Um... But I would want to ask you, because I really do think you're more qualified than 99% of the people I see on CNN talking about this. What do you think Dr. King would say about Donald Trump in this administration?
1: You know, Donald, Donald Trump is like a bull. They call him a bully, but I say he's like a bull. And I think that Dr. King would have been more like a dog in terms of saying, I'm dealing with you head on. I'm not running out the arena, I'm here. You're going to have to come at me because I'm coming at you. In other words, he would not let this man do the things that he's doing and sit back silent upon what he's doing. I think he would have realized that he has a big following, not just here in the United States, but on a worldwide level to make all people come together and make them realize that we have a situation with the chief commanding officer of this nation, might be going to the right, and so many people are to the left in this society in the United States. To galvanize those individuals, to have a force to put a message in Mr. Trump's head, to make them understand we will not tolerate the things that we see you doing.
0: Mm. And the, the other question I really wanted to ask you for these students is another one that I know you've gotten a lot over the last uh, decades, which is the question of regret. Because there's no question that you paid a price for standing up in Mexico City. You know, there was the economic price. There was the price of pressure on your family. There was the price of being an outcast in this world of track and field, which you had always seen as your home. There was the price of just trying to figure out your way in a world that was uh, treating you as if, as you once said to me, as if you had some sort of disease and keeping you at arm's length. And even with all of that, though, the question comes is, do you have regrets? Would you do it again if it was back October 1968?
1: No regrets whatsoever. No, not, You know, I tell people that I was born June 5th, 1965 to be in Mexico, 1945. To be in Mexico October 16th, 1968. I was born for that mission. Now, I have no regrets about what I did. Uh, if I had any sadness about what took place, it would be the fact that I got married, as I said, my senior year in high school. Um, I lost my wife in the process of the demonstration. By being a young individual, you know, you stand up against the world or or this big dragon, and and you're not concerned about your safety or well-being because you think everything is going to be directed to you. And when they apply uh, this treacherous Situation for my wife and my kids. Because and I and I state this because they shot so many different things at me to knock me down. And you know, like I had a shield of arm on me, they they could never penetrate me. Because I'm thinking that they're coming to me. But when they went after my wife and my kids, uh, that got to me. It got to me because my wife took her life as a result of it. It was difficult for me to accept that my wife felt weak to the point where she said she can't deal with it anymore and she left uh, because I was more concerned about if I'm out here in the field, so to speak, working, who's around now to take care of my kids? You you left here as a result of of the weakness because they came on you so hard. So I felt all my life and probably for the rest of my life, I felt that I should have done a better job in terms of protecting my family more. So that will always be an emotional and, and a pain in my heart to think that I didn't do the best possible job I could to protect my wife and kids. Mm. So that's the only, any, only re- possible regret that I would have about the whole scenario. But, but I have to say, as
0: someone who's gotten to know your family, is that you have five children. Yes. And you are all remarkably close, and all your kids are just remarkable people. And given the trauma that you just described, how are you able to keep everybody together? How are you able to keep your family unit intact without perhaps tragedy befalling uh, one of your own kids? Well, it's simple,
1: man. It's the word L-O-V. Love. I mean, that's what society is missing today, is love, for one another. We had love in my house, man, from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Mm. You know, uh, and the same type of love that I received from my mother and father, my brothers and sisters. is the same type of package that I put together for my kids to let them know that they're loved and let them know that they can share love. I was expressing to the fellow that drove me in here yesterday and I was telling about a student my 30 years of teaching. There was a young girl in my class She came in this particular day and she was all right. And I told her, I so, said, calm down, big girl. And I talked to her. And then I told her, Say, hey, I love you. And she looked at me. She said, I don't want your love, Mr. Carlos. And I looked at her. I told said, well, listen, baby girl, let me enlighten you. I gave you the love. You can't give it back to me. All you can do is roll it around your soul. And when you realize what this thing is love, then you start to love yourself. And then you can take that love and give it to somebody else. But you can't bring it back to me. Years went by, and I'm driving. I'm getting ready to leave, move out of the state of California, and I'm driving down the street, and I see this woman standing on the curb at the bus stop, and she got two kids with her. And as I'm driving by, I hear this holler, hey, Mr.
2: Carlos!
1: So, you know, right away, you see two little kids. So he said, well, let me go back. They need to ride somewhere. Let me go back. And when I got back there, I saw the girl, and she looked kind of familiar, but I don't remember all the instances that happened in my life. But she said to me, she said, Mr. Carlos, do you remember me? Thank you. <laughs> She said, well, I just want you to know that you changed my life. And if my kids don't know about nobody, they know about Mr. Carlos. And she looked at her kids and said, and this is Mr. Carlos. And they would come up and they was hugging on me, you know. And I am like, just wow, blown away. She said, do you remember me, Mr. Carlos? I said, no, help me. She said, well, I was in your class one day, and I had a problem with one of my teachers. And, and I came into you because I used to work in the discipline area. I came into you, and I was very upset. And you talked to me, and you tried to calm me down. And then you just told me out of the sky, I love you. I and she said that it ran in the back of my head like the brick's falling down. And I said to her, I said, yeah, and you told me you don't want my love. Well, she said, when you told me that, Mr. Carlos, it changed my entire life. And I wanted those kids, mine right here, to know if they didn't know anybody else, I want to know about you. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have my kids, and I wouldn't have them as close to me as they are today. So that word love goes a long way. It's a very powerful situation. Even in the midst of battle, your enemy, the ones that you're trying to make see the light, you got to let them know that you still have love for them. Why do you let them know you have love for them? Because you're taking time with them to try and make them understand and see the real picture in life. Mm. And tell one person today that you love them. Just take
0: that from this. And and to the fellas in particular, don't be like, I love you, man. And then be like, ha-ha, just kidding. Well, I, you, um, know,
1: I, you know, when, I was, when I was a kid, there, it, I, I, I saw this movie called, and I think they're trying to make a... Uh, Reproduce this movie now called Spartacus.
2: <laughs> and remember,
1: in the first time I ever seen a guy tell another guy, "I love you." I saw Tony Curtis tell Kirk Douglas in this movie, Spartacus. Spartacus, I love you. And when he said that, all the guys jumped up in the movie theater. What? He a saint. So as you grow, you begin to realize that love is just a universal thing. It's not about a man always have to tell a woman he loves her or she tells You can tell anyone, anything, your dog even, I love you. And the dog is respond to that word, love.
0: But if your dog is talking back to you, you might have troubles. <laughs> um, one last question for you before we see if there's any, anybody wants to ask us anything is... Uh, This past week, uh, there was an NFL playoff game between the Seattle Seahawks and the Atlanta Falcons, and after a sack by Seattle Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett, he stands up and he's wearing one black glove, and he bows his head and he raises his fist, and he did that both as a tribute to you and Tommy Smith in 1968, but also as a way to say That was not just something in the historical past. That is a legacy that we are going to carry forward of the athlete activist. How does it feel after being ignored, uh, disrespected for so many decades to now see a new generation of athletes take up the mantle and say, we stand in this tradition? That's got to be incredibly satisfying. And that's the picture right there, by the way, behind you, if you haven't seen it, John.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I have it at the
0: house.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> definitely I the house. Well, you know, I'm going to be frank about this. You know, my job back almost 50 years ago was to be a gardener, a horticulture, in the virgin you know, that till the earth, water the soil, plant the seeds. What you see in Mr. Bennett, what you see in Mr. Kavanagh, and many other athletes throughout the NBA, NC two A, all of those individuals, they're the fruit of my labor. So when I see them do it, I smile to myself because I knew this day would come where a lot of athletes would wake up. And why are they waking up? They're waking up to tell you it's time for society to wake up, to make this a better place. Yeah, I love the fact that I'm an NFL player. I love the fact that I have you coming out after church or coming out before church to come to see football. But at the same time, I want you to realize that I'm not just your warrior. I'm a human being and I have concerns. And I'm proud of who I am as a black individual in this society in which we live. So he's sending a sublime message when he makes that statement. For you to start to question yourself, is what is he representing when he did this on the field of athletics? You know, like people ask me, he said, Wow, why did you go to the Olympic Games and do what you did? Why not go to the Olympic Games and do what I did? It's my energy. It's my time. It was my 15 minutes in the sun. I can do what I want to do with that time. So if I did it on 125th Street in front of the Apollo in New York, who's going to see it? When you make a statement, the object of making a statement is for the people to be able to see it on the far ends of the earth. Where else could they see it on the far end of the Earth back in 1968 other than the Olympic Games? It took a long time for people to come out of the shock of what they saw, that spectacle that day. Remember, it was the first time anyone on planet Earth had ever seen any individual, much more two individuals, with a third individual to come up and wear a button to say, I support what you did, and not be of the same ethnic background. So, you know, like we talked about when David mentioned, you know, Tommy Smith and John Collins, well, you can never negate to mention Peter Norman, because Peter Norman played a big role in that. He didn't stand there with his fists up to the sky, but the metaphor of him standing there with that button on and said, Olympic Project for Human Rights, let society know, hey, man, I'm not in the fight with them, but I understand the fight that they're there, and I support the fight that they involved in. Why? Merely because he grew up in a country that was so parallel to South Africa, in terms of the ideals of South Africa. Because Australia had the same ideals relative to the uh, aboriginal people there in South Africa. He looked at America as being the greatest nation in the world, and he was shocked when he began to see just what was happening in society here in this country. Because it was not the picture that they were presenting outside the United States to the rest of the world. What we did up there that day in Mexico City is almost like we pulled the brakes down and let everybody peep in and see what was really going on in this country. Mm
0: -hmm. So it feels good.
1: It always feels good when you see the youngsters come up and make you reflect back on your younger days.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time. And now for some choice words that I'm calling Giannis on the brink. There is no NBA All-Star taking our collective breath away quite like the 22-year-old Milwaukee Buck Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's the elastic arms and galactic skill set combined with a rapidly developing basketball computer brain that's turning him before our eyes into Magic Johnson 2.0. Or Magic Johnson 3.0 if you believe LeBron to be the 2.0 version. As Andrew Sharp put it in Sports Illustrated, he's arriving in a way that no one thought possible even two months ago, and it's the biggest story in the NBA. This is a player we should be celebrating for his singular ability on the court, but instead we cannot be content to merely celebrate the Greek freak, we are going to have to defend him. Greece is a country that has been roiled by economic crisis in recent years. Their misery has opened the door to an openly fascist, disturbingly popular political party called Golden Dawn, and they are no fans of Giannis. When he was drafted by the Bucks in 2013, Golden Dawn leader Niko Michaloliakos rejected the idea That Giannis, because he was the son of Nigerian immigrants, was truly Greek, saying, quote, If you give a chimpanzee in the zoo a banana and a flag, is he Greek? End quote. These aren't your run-of-the-mill racists either. Golden Dawn leaders are currently on trial for running an openly, quote-unquote, criminal operation that murders people for political gain. When you are in their crosshairs, they pull the trigger especially when the target is a high-profile, 21st-century, multicultural Greek person that they want to destroy. Golden Dawn members murdered a famous anti-fascist hip-hop artist named Pavlos Fiasis on September 17, 2013, and have attempted assassination against members of trade unions and political parties. Mass demonstrations and open street battles have had to take place to challenge these goons, And now Giannis is in their sights. As Anne-Marie Strasser wrote in 2013 for Think Progress, In some ways, he is their perfect villain. A young boy, not ethnically Greek, able to achieve success despite poverty and immigration status. He was even fast-tracked towards citizenship because of special services to the country. End quote. Michalo Liakos, the Golden Dawn leader who's also currently on trial for criminal violence, called for Giannis's family to be arrested when they met with the Greek Prime Minister because of their one-time undocumented status. As for Giannis, his story is so remarkable precisely because of this history. He joined his parents selling watches and wallets on the streets of Greece, along with his four brothers to put food on the table. He said to the New York Times, "'Sometimes our fridge was empty. Some days we didn't sell, and we didn't have money to feed ourselves.'" It is difficult to look at the story of Giannis Antetokounmpo and not think of our own country, where a president was just elected by whipping up hostility, hatred, and even violence against the immigrant communities in the United States. An immigrant church near my house was vandalized with Trump Nation whites only, and an elderly El Salvadoran woman was attacked, so forgive me for not biting my tongue about this. To celebrate Giannis's triumph as a basketball player is to celebrate the journey of his parents and to fight for the rights of all people to find their place in the world. When he first came to this country to play pro basketball as a teenager, he charmed people by tweeting, I just got a taste for the first time a smoothie. Man, God bless America. Yet in a recent 3,500-word profile for Sports Illustrated by the great Lee Jenkins, Giannis said simply, That kid the kid with the smoothies, I'm not really that kid anymore. Giannis is all grown up, ready to take over the world. We need to grow up as well to the threats faced by people who share his background, but don't have the ability to put a ball in a hoop. Now it's time for Kaepernick Watch, and this one is a good one. Kaepernick Watch is the section of the show where we speak about the latest exploits of San Francisco 49er quarterback and Rebel athlete Colin Kaepernick. It seems like he's doing something remarkable every week, and the end of the NFL season is not stopping him a lick. So last week, I got a call from a wonderful person named Katrina, who is Colin Kaepernick's personal assistant, about me going up to New York City. Because Kaepernick was going to be at the Audubon Ballroom, on the spot where assassins gunned down Malcolm X half a century ago, to lead a day called Know Your Rights, a series of workshops about history and civil liberties for over 200 high school kids. Part of the day also was going to be to honor a woman who passed away in 2014 named Yuri Kochiyama. She was a Japanese-American political activist who held Malcolm X as he died. Malcolm X's family was going to be there as well with the Kochiyama family for this honor. Now, apparently Colin Kaepernick reads my stuff, he listens to this podcast, and he wanted me there. And I wanted to be there too, but honestly, I had utterly unbreakable plans and could not leave D.C. and make it up to New York And that hurt, believe me. It hurt a lot to not be able to go there. But the fact that Colin Kaepernick was there doing this kind of thing is amazing. And if you do a Google search right now about the event, and to me this is also amazing, the only article that you will find that this happened, it's not in Sports Illustrated, it's not in ESPN, it's not in any of the New York City tabloids, it's one article in a newspaper in Lewiston, Maine. And that's because a reporter from Lewiston was invited down because the curriculum of Know Your Rights was actually created by two people who are connected to Bates College, a small liberal arts school up there in Maine. And they wanted this reporter from Lewiston there. So the only people who would have been there would have been a guy from the Lewiston newspaper and me. And the fact that it wasn't done for media, the fact that it was done literally because Colin Kaepernick wanted to honor Malcolm X, he wanted to honor Yuri Kochiyama, and he wanted to reach 200 kids in New York City, that is an amazing thing in and of itself. It's not what most NFL quarterbacks are doing now that their season has ended. And so props to Colin Kaepernick. I have every confidence we're going to get him on this podcast. And when that does happen, it will be volcanic. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to everyone in the sports world, and frankly, it's too many people to name, who are standing up to Jim Brown. Jim Brown is someone who spent his entire career as someone people were afraid to stand up to because his record has been so unassailable as someone who was never afraid to stand up for the rights of athletes, for the rights of black Americans, and for the rights of people who are some of the most abused in our society, namely people who are often referred to as quote-unquote gangbangers. Jim Brown has been there for those communities, and because of that, it's allowed him to skate on criticism, particularly criticisms of issues of misogyny and violence against women. But this week, Jim Brown really did take it too far. Not only has he supported Donald Trump, as we've talked about on this show, but he's also come out hard against John Lewis, uh, the civil rights veteran and hero, because John Lewis is boycotting Trump's inauguration and called Trump an illegitimate president, quite correctly. And then Donald Trump, in highly racist fashion, went after John Lewis, saying that John Lewis represented a crime-ridden area in Atlanta. That's not true. The area that John Lewis represents includes Morehouse and Special. Bellman and some of the jewels of the historically black colleges, but I guess he thought since John Lewis was black and represented part of Atlanta, it must be crime-ridden. That's called racism. And yet Jim Brown has been out there supporting Donald Trump and going after John Lewis. And what I'm seeing across social media is people saying to Jim Brown, you done took it too far and we're not going to have it. And you know, it's very sad that 81-year-old Jim Brown is choosing for this to be the last chapter of his political story, caping for a white supremacist sympathizer. But you know what? The fact that people are standing up to him is actually a sign of hope. It shows we're not going to let people skate on this one. We're not going to normalize this president. And not even Jim Brown gets to do that. That's all for this week. I'm Dave Zirin here on the Edge of Sports podcast. I want to give a big shout out and a thank you to Pascual Musto over at the Middlesex School for inviting John Carlos and I to do that remarkable event. I want to thank, frankly, all the professors and teachers there for being so hospitable to us. Thank you to Dr. John Carlos, of course, for being such a courageous and terrific friend. Thank you, Dan Bloom, the producer of this podcast. If you want to call into the Edge of Sports hotline, Let us know how you're doing during this very, I think, contradictory and difficult time in U.S. history. You can always call us at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. To everybody out there, particularly the people who are going to be protesting this inauguration weekend, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.